and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Some say God wants you to be successful and prosperous, but what if that would be the worst thing for you? Teaching team member Caleb Click finishes the series Gideon and the God of Grace with this sermon entitled Prone to Wander, which covers Judges chapter 8, verses 4 to 28. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. My name's Brady. I'll be reading from Judges chapter 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zebah and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zebah and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him, as with the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zebah and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all of who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbehah, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure, and Zebah and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon said to Joash, then Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle of the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zebah and Zalmona, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zebah and Zalmona already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zebah and Zalmona, Where are the men whom you killed at Tarbor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And they said, Where were my brothers, the son, sons of my mother? As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zebah and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zebah and Zalmona, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let, us, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that 
he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, in the wilderness of our hearts, prepare the way of the Lord. Through your word and by your spirit, bring life to our barren souls. Lift up every valley, lay low every mountain, and reveal your glory in Christ, that we may see it together as your people. In Christ's name, amen. Father, I ask, would you come now? Would you speak through me in my weakness? And would you make your son, would you make him glorious to behold? In Jesus' name, amen. Just a few moments ago, we sang what is, I think, pretty easily my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And, and I love it for multiple reasons, but, but one of them, it is specifically verse three because it is a verse that I resonate with more than almost the lyric of any other song that I've ever heard. Come, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I love that line. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And my guess is you do too, because every time we sing that song together, you can hear it in our voices. There's something about that lyric where all of us, with our wandering hearts, we resonate so deeply with the words of that hymn. And they're words that don't just resonate with us, they're words that resonated deeply with the man who wrote them. You know, this is a hymn with, in some sense, a, a strange story. These words were penned in 1758 by a 22-year-old young man named Robert Robinson. He had just been converted a couple of years prior. He'd heard the preaching of George Whitfield and the Lord had brought conviction on him about his sin and he left this life of immorality that he was living and he embraced Jesus and he gave him his heart and he chased after him with everything that he had. And the beginning stage of his story, it is the classic Christian conversion story. He hears the gospel, he's changed by the gospel. The man who was living like a prodigal son becomes a pastor and a preacher and a writer and a writer of books and of hymns. He leads a church so effectively that this church in the 1700s grew to have over a thousand people a week in attendance. Now that may not sound like a lot in the modern era, but remember this, they don't have cars. That's a draw. But here, here's where his story gets murky. And the only thing that historians can agree on is this. Here was a man who was really and truly prone to wander. One version of the story, one that you have no doubt heard preached, I've heard it preached, is that at some point in his life, Robert Robinson abandoned the faith. 
He returned to the life of immorality that he had left and he lived for years in that condition until one day he got into a carriage and there was a woman in the carriage with him who was singing softly under her breath, come thou fount of every blessing. And God, through the singing of that hymn, brought the strange sheep home. I love that story. I love it because it's clean. I love it because it takes this unsettling thing and and makes it wrap up all with a nice, neat little bow. The The problem is if you dig into that at all, you will quickly find there is no historical evidence that it ever took place. What you find instead is something messy. Robert Robinson, he began to wonder He began to wrestle theologically so much so that he left his denomination, not once, not twice, but three different times, each time jumping to a new place that fit his new ideas, until finally, in the very end of his life, he entered into this state of such deep theological wrestling that he resigned his church, exhausted and weary, and continued to wrestle, to fight with himself until finally, within the year, he passed away, and he was in such a state that even his closest friends were divided on whether or not he stayed in the Orthodox faith or not. His story starts so strong. It looks so beautiful. And then things get messy. As unsettling as that story is, it's not an unfamiliar one, is it? You know, in Christian circles, we have this really bad habit of wanting our heroes to be perfect, of wanting them to have no warts or wrinkles, no wandering, we wanna pretty them up, we want their lives to be tied off with nice, neat little bows, maybe like that story about Robert Robinson and the carriage. But real life, Real life is always more confusing. And we know that because our own lives are always more confusing. And each and every one of us, we have those hearts that just like Robert Robinson's, it is a heart that is prone to wonder. In which, as we said last week, there is the fire of grace, but also the what? The smoke of corruption and sin. This is one of the things that I love so much about the Bible. We may flinch from messy stories and messy people. God doesn't. When you open up the pages of scripture, there is not one person except for Jesus who is painted as without warts or wrinkles or wanderings. Every single one of them, even the most significant of people, all of them are shown to have sin and brokenness and need to have wandered in some way. Moses doubts, Elijah gets suicidal, David commits murder and adultery, Solomon falls away into idolatry. Peter, one of the disciples, Peter denies Jesus with his words before Jesus' death and then with the pattern of his life after Jesus' resurrection. And then, then there's Gideon. This man whose life we see told in chapter six and seven, whose life seems to be going in a very specific direction. And then you find in chapter eight, which Brady had to bravely muster his way through, you find in chapter eight that this man who seemed as though he was getting better and better and better, that there were still stones, idols in his heart that had not been turned over as you would have thought. 
And everything that God through Gideon began to do in chapter six and seven, Gideon begins to undo in chapter eight. In chapter six and seven, Gideon is God's appointed savior of Israel from their oppression. He's the one who's delivering them from the hands of the Midianites who are oppressing them, who are committing injustice against them. Chapter eight, Gideon has become the oppressor of Israel. Chapter six and seven, Gideon's the first Israelite to begin to show the fruits of repentance. He tears down his father's altar to Baal and Ophrah. Chapter eight, Gideon builds a new altar and a new idol. Where? Ophrah. He's not the cure to Israel's idolatry. Gideon becomes the cause. In chapter six and seven, God meets Gideon's fear with grace. In chapter eight, Gideon meets Israel's fear, not with grace, he meets it with fury. He is a man who like Robert Robinson and every person in this room whose heart is revealed as prone to wonder, who is drifting from the God who loved him, saved him, and poured out his grace upon him. And we find in this story, this reminder that permeates every page of scripture, that if we are going to be saved, it will not be through our own power or our own will or through our own wiles. It will be by grace and grace alone. And if we are to be saved, we need a savior far better than a man like Gideon. We need one who does not have a heart that is prone to wander. We need one who is perfect in every way, unstained by sin or wrinkle. One who is faithful even when we are faithless. Judges 8, Judges 8 is first a warning. It's one of those stories where God is laying before us those temptations that are common to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. And is calling to us and saying as he does in 1 Corinthians 10, take heed lest you fall. But it's also an invitation to see the God whose response to our faithlessness, whose response to our sin, it is still more grace. The God who is faithful, even when we are faithless. There's a warning here, two of them. The first, it's a warning against the allure of personal success. You know, coming off of chapter six and seven, you know, if I was the author of this story, um, I can tell you where I would take it. Gideon, having received so much grace, having been plucked out of his fear and his weakness into a faithful and mighty man of God, Gideon would continue on that ascent and Gideon would begin to show grace to others. That would be the way I would write the story. Midian keeps fleeing, Israel rejoices, idolatry goes away. But that's not what happens, is it? From the moment verse four starts, there are all these hints that things, things are very, very wrong. For one, notice who's absent. God is. The God whose presence is everywhere announced in chapter six and seven. He is nowhere mentioned in chapter eight. Gideon invokes his name, but notice he never asks him for help. He never asks him for guidance. And God never ever speaks 
He's vanished. He's missing. It's just Gideon doing what Gideon wants, when he wants, and how he wants. And you see this pattern begin to emerge, first in verses four to nine. Gideon is chasing the remains of the Midianite army, the 15,000 men who remain of that army of 135,000. And Gideon, he still has his 300 men. They're tired, but they are still trying to chase the enemy down. And because he's still in Israel, which means he's on his home turf, Gideon thinks, well, if we're tired, we're exhausted, we need food, surely these towns will give us a warm welcome. After all, we are the ones who just liberated them from captivity. And so Gideon stops expecting to be met with open arms and instead in two towns, Succoth and Penuel, the same conversation plays out. Gideon comes and says, we need bread, help us. And the people of Succoth and then the people of Penuel, they respond with this, verse six. Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Now, Gideon hears that, and Gideon hears a taunt. But let me ask you a question. Is that what Gideon should have heard? What are they saying? They're saying, if you don't have their severed hands with you right now, explicitly, literally what he's saying, what they are saying to him, how do we know that we are really safe? There are still 15,000 Midianites out there. Their kings are still alive. And you have how many men? 300. If you go out there and you fail, and they find out that we gave you bread, what do you think is going to happen to us? They're not taunting Gideon. What's happening? They're afraid which is something that based on chapter six and seven, Gideon, he should be sympathetic to, isn't it? It's almost as though God is playing coach pitch with Gideon. He's taking the ball and throwing it right at his bat, where all Gideon has to do is just stand there and it's gonna be at least a base hit. This is Gideon's chance. God has responded to Gideon's fear with grace. He has proclaimed to him his peace in the midst of his terror. He has announced his presence with him to save, to renew, to restore, and he has shown himself to be faithful. And so Gideon, he could come to these terrified people and proclaim to them the same thing God spoke to Gideon. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. God is with you. That's what Gideon should do. But that's not what Gideon does, is it? What does Gideon do instead? Gideon threatens them. Look at his responses. First he responds to Succoth, verse seven. Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh. Literally, the Hebrew word here is thresh. The same word that described what Gideon was doing in the wine press back in chapter six. I will flail, thresh your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He goes to Penuel. They give him the same response and Gideon says the people of Penuel. Verse nine, when I come again in peace 
a peace very different than the peace in which the Lord came to me, I will break down this tower. Gideon says, you're scared? You're frightened of the Midianites? Fear me. I will be the one who brings reprisal. I will be the one who makes you regret your decision. I will take your tower, the place when you were afraid you fly to for refuge, and I will strip you of it. Don't fear the Midianites. Fear Gideon. And he doesn't just say these things. Gideon acts on them. He captures Zeba and Zalmanah. He routes that army of 15,000 men. And then Gideon does something that tells you his priorities have changed. He doesn't immediately neutralize the threat to Israel. He doesn't kill Zeba and Zalmanah. He doesn't chase down the remainder of the army that's just been dispersed. Instead, Gideon takes them in alive and he goes where? To Succoth and Penuel. And when he gets there, he gathers the name of every single leader because he doesn't want anyone to miss out on what he's about to dish out. And then he says this to them in verse 15. He says, behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, about whom, and here's the key words, you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Now pause just right here for a second. Why is Gideon here? He's just told you with his own lips. He's not here because God called him to. He's not here because the Lord has said, Gideon, there's this thing I need you to do before you deal with the Midianite threat. No, why is Gideon here? Because he wants to teach them a lesson. Why? Because they taunted him. What's Gideon doing? He's not pursuing their salvation. Gideon is pursuing personal vengeance. He is there with God's people. And not only is he threatening them with his words, he begins to act on those threats. It says that he flails the people of Succoth with thorns and with briars, which means those men probably did not walk away from that unscarred. And then in verse 17, he goes into the town of Penuel and he destroys their tower, which he promised to do. But then it adds this little piece. It says he also killed every single man, which is a problem why. Who has God specifically called Gideon to save? Israel. Who is Gideon now treating as his enemy? The very people God loves. Gideon's heart, it is now in conflict with God's heart. He's wondered. And the verses that follow tell you that he has actually wondered further still. He turns to the Midianite kings, two men, who you'll notice whose names you have never heard mentioned until chapter eight. You never hear God say, Gideon, make sure you get these two particular men. 
You just hear him say, fight back, destroy the Midianites who are oppressing my people. That's all that God has said. Gideon has been chasing down these two men. And if you're reading this and thinking, why is he doing that? Gideon is about to tell you, verse 19, for this reason and this alone, they killed my brothers. What's Gideon after? He's not after Israel's salvation at all. He's again after vengeance. Something, something has happened to Gideon, hasn't it? Something has taken this man who in chapter seven was worshiping the Lord in gratitude because God had poured out grace upon grace. And now, now this man, he does not look like he has been moved by God's grace at all. God did more for Gideon than he does for almost any other judge. He clothes him with his spirit. He makes him strong in his weakness. He pours out his grace on him when he's fearful. And yet somehow Gideon here, he is responding to people in a totally different way, a way that is antithetical to God's very heart for his children. What's happened? Just one thing, success. Gideon in chapter six says, God, how could you save through me? I'm so weak and I am so small. Now that the Midianites are fleeing before him, what is Gideon saying? Look at me. I am so big and I am so strong. Success, success has made him come to believe that he is something that he is not. And the glory that belongs to God alone, it is glory that Gideon is now claiming for himself. And what's alarming about this story is that this can show up in even the seemingly best of places. This isn't success in the business world that leads him to pride. It's not success in some personal endeavor. It's success in something that looks on the surface like ministry. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon used to tell about John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, where Bunyan ascended the pulpit one Sunday and preached this sermon, apparently a sermon that was magnificent. Everyone was applauding, they thought it was incredible, and when Bunyan came down the steps, he encountered one of the congregants who said to John Bunyan, who said to him, this sermon, you, you exposited the gospel in a way that was more beautiful than I have ever heard it. Jesus is more glorious to me than he ever has been before, and he did it through you, and Bunyan looked this man in the eyes, and he said to him this, in a move that probably wasn't pastorally wise, but points to something important, he says, you're too late. The devil already told me the same thing when I left the pulpit. Now, I share that story, and I would say to you, please don't not encourage your pastors. We need it. But he's put his finger on something real, hasn't he? I mean, I confessed to you last week, I walk into the pulpit terrified every time. I was terrified today. Begging the Lord, Lord, would you work through me in my weakness? but I can tell you the temptation of my heart when I walk out. If it goes well, the man who said, God, do something, suddenly starts saying, I did this. This can happen anywhere. We beg the Lord to free us from some pattern of sin, and we have no power to free ourselves from it, and God does it. 
We beg the Lord to take our children and make the promise that he has made in his covenant, make it true in their hearts so that they would walk with him and follow him all their days, and God does it. We ask that God would use us to bring others to Christ, and God does it, and he does it even though we are weak and foolish and our words, they are not sufficient. And yet, what is the temptation after God answers those prayers? It is to look at others where it seems as though they have not had that victory or they have not had that success or where their children have fallen away and to think that maybe the reason I have them is because there's something in me that wasn't in them. And to claim for ourselves glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Judges 8, it is here that God is here for God's people so that we would take heed unless we fall. You know, as Tim Keller has said, Sometimes we need to be delivered, not sometimes, we need to be delivered not just from our shame and our guilt and our failures, we need to be delivered also from our successes because success can be more dangerous than failure and prosperity, prosperity more dangerous than adversity because at least in those moments we do not forget who's actually in control. We need to be brought back to that hope of the gospel that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2, where he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one, not even the Gideons of this world may boast. Success, success can make our hearts wander when really we should be on our faces giving thanks to the God of grace who has saved us at all. But that's not the only danger that Judges 8 warns of. He also warns against the allure of counterfeit saviors. Gideon, Gideon's not the only one who's wandering. Verse 22 says Israel's wandering too. God in chapter seven, he has made abundantly clear that there is only one who is saved and that is himself. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter seven in verse two, God explicitly tells Gideon, I want you to take the 32,000 men that you have and I want you to winnow them down into an army of 300. Why? So that Israel will not be tempted to think that they've saved themselves. But what does Israel do in verse 22? They see the victory that God has promised, but they completely miss who deserves the praise. They come to Gideon, and first they ask for something they are not supposed to ask him. Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, basically be our king. And they tell him, here's the reason. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You know, you right read that and think, that just seems so absolutely foolish. How could you watch all of that and have that be the conclusion? That weak, frightened, sinful Gideon, who's just threshed your friends, he's just flailed one of your neighboring towns, he's just torn down their tower and killed their men. How could you look at him and be like, there's the Savior? But if you actually think about it, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Midianites are gone. 
But there are still other enemies, aren't there? And God, they can't see him. They can see Gideon. And he's got the severed hands of Zeba and Zalman now. He's dispersed the armies and he is the one who is sitting there and so in their hearts they begin to wonder if maybe this is the person who will be our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in trouble. We can see him, we can touch him, we can hear him. Maybe he's the savior that we need after all. We do this all the time. It's why we're so prone to give our hearts to that romantic partner who seems as though they're finally gonna satisfy that need to be loved. It's why we cling to certain political figures and sometimes cling to pastors and to authors and to theologians. It's, It's why we are drawn to these things that we can taste and touch and feel because we want something we can see, something tangible, and there is this fear in our heart that maybe they will give us something that God cannot or God will not. And Gideon, Gideon right here shows us the danger. Because whatever salvation they offer, if it is rooted in them, ultimately it is an empty salvation. Because Gideon, in this story, he receives Israel's hearts. They bowed, they're basically bowing down and worshiping him. And what does Gideon do? He takes those hearts and he stomps on them. He says all the right things. And then he immediately undoes what he has said with everything that he has done, with everything that he does. He says to this desire for him to be king, verse 23, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Basically, I know you're not supposed to ask that. I know I'm not supposed to say yet. The Lord is your king and him alone. Right answer. But notice what he doesn't say and then also what he does after first He doesn't rebuke them for saying, you saved us. Earlier when they taunted him, he refused to receive their taunts. Now he's more than willing to receive their praise. There's a problem. But then notice what he does. He immediately does everything an ancient Near Eastern man would do if he was asserting himself as king. Things that if you've ever read the scriptures and the commands God has given concerning a king for his people, things Israel's king has been explicitly commanded never to do. First, verses 24 to 26, he takes their money. Do you notice this? They've just come out of battle, they have all the spoils of war, And Gideon, who's just said, I will not rule over you, he immediately asks them to give them their earrings, their ornaments, all the things a conquering king would ask of his people in a display of submission to him. Verse 30, we're told that he has 70 sons because he has many wives. You hope there's many if there's that many kids. That doesn't even mention the girls. He's got a harem, which you remember with Solomon. That was bad news, wasn't it? Verse 31, we're told that one of those sons has a very interesting name, Abimelech. An interesting name because do you know what it means? My father is what? King. And then then Gideon does something that tells you that he is really sliding off the rails. Verse 27. He makes an idol. 
He makes this thing called an ephod, which is simply a vestment that God's high priest was supposed to wear because it marked him out as the one who spoke for the Lord himself. As the one who, when Israel was facing something and they needed help or they needed guidance, they would go to him and he would go to the Lord with that need and then he would come back and say, here is what the Lord is calling you to do. Gideon makes an ephod and notice for who? For him. What's Gideon doing? He's saying, I now speak for God. You wanna know what his will is? You wanna know how he would guide you? Don't go to the high priest in the tabernacle. Go to me. He is claiming a role that God has not given to him. And not only that, it is a role that God has explicitly denied him. And then notice this, this is key. How does Israel respond? They made a mistake asking him to be king. And now in the face of all these things, you would think maybe here is a chance for the alarm bells to ring in Israel to go, you know what? This is unfaithfulness to the God who just saved us. We cannot go down that road. And they would rebuke Gideon or they would turn away or they would go back to the Lord their God. But that's not what Israel does, is it? Verse 27, what does Israel do? It says they hoard after it. They just followed You have here a test, a way of maybe diagnosing your own heart to see if you have given it to a counterfeit savior. And the test is simply this. If that person or thing that you love calls you to do something that would lead you to be unfaithful to Jesus, how do you respond to that demand? Do you stand firm? Or like Israel, do you just follow them? We're all prone to this. You know, I've fallen into this more times than I can count. When I was in college, uh, I adored, I adored the work of this man named Martin Luther. I still do, to some degree. I had come to Christ I'd come to know Jesus, he had broken in and shown me his love, but I was still wrestling with legalism in this sense that I had to do something to earn his love and his favor. And when I opened up Martin Luther, I found the gospel of grace pure and free, and it was beautiful and glorious, and it made me love Jesus even more. And I looked at Luther and I idolized the man. Here was a guy who was bold for the faith, who was willing to risk his life for the faith, a man who made the gospel beautiful in every single way. And so I read every book I could find, every sermon I could find, everything about him that I could get, I got a hold of. And I still remember to this day where I was when I began to read in this one biography that made no bones about his sins, I still remember where that image that I had concocted began to crumble. I was sitting up in Peachtree Corners in the place we now know of as the Forum, in a coffee shop that no longer exists, Caribou Coffee. And I was sitting in the back room reading this book where he was listing out all of these things in Luther's heart that were just ugly. Anger, bitterness, vindictiveness. A man who instead of building support across the body of Christ would just very quickly, at the slightest disagreement, would suddenly declare that person a heretic. 
I started reading about a man who not only said awful things about the Jews and the peasants, he endorsed awful things that were done to the Jews and to the peasants. And I remember feeling my heart break within me and there was this very subtle thing that took place, a sign that I had given Luther something I should not have given him. I started trying to justify him. I started thinking, well, maybe you know, he's just a man of his times. So it wasn't quite as bad as if it had happened today. And he was angry at those people, but they were kind of wrong. And so maybe, maybe they needed some rebuke. And it was just a couple years later, I was sitting in a seminary classroom at Covenant and one of my professors started laying out the very things that I had read. And I remember going up to him after class and entering into the same justifying argument. He was a man of his times. Maybe some of the anger was due to the things that they were doing. And I remember him just cutting me off in a way that I, I needed to be cut off and looking me in the face and saying, Caleb, there is never any justification for bigotry. What had happened I took him and I had made him an idol. I had put him on a pedestal where he did not belong. And he was leading me into the very, into unfaithfulness by me justifying the sins that he had committed. It happens all over the place. Why is it when you find that romantic partner that your heart is longed for why is it sometimes that you are tempted to ignore the command of Jesus to seek somebody else who loves Jesus? Why in that moment are you tempted to think maybe marriage to this person or dating this person is better than Jesus himself? Why is it that when we find a political figure who maybe fits with the values that we hold for the most part, we have this temptation to give them our unqualified allegiance. And we sometimes just go silent when we should be very, very loud. Why do we sometimes latch onto pastors and to theologians, even as I have? And even though we know there is very clear sin that has been revealed, why do we feel the need to justify them? if it is not because we think that somehow our salvation depends on it. Here's what Judges 8 would say. All of those people, they don't deserve your heart, not ultimately. Because what is true of every one of them, the same thing that is true of every one of us. They are, as Francis Schaeffer said, people in whom there is a wonderful and terrible mix of dignity and depravity. People who are created in God's image and thus glorious in some sense, but whose lives they have also been marred by sin. People who are worthy of our compassion and our care and even our honor, but who, who also need to be confronted in love because they are sinners in need of a savior just as we are. We are prone to wander, prone to wander and to leave the God that we love. And here, here is why Judges 8 ultimately, even with that warning, is still good news. 
Because while we are prone to wonder, it points us to a God who has never wandered. God's presence may not be mentioned in this text, but it does not mean that he is not there. Because we have a God who sits there and looks at Israel, this people that right off the heels of their great salvation through Gideon, they are already bowing down to yet another idol. They're going right back into the thing that God brought God's disciplined hand, and yet what does God still in his kindness and his goodness give them? Verse 28, 40 years of relative peace. He doesn't abandon them. We have a God who comes to Gideon, this man whose heart is clearly wandering, this man who may have started strong, but now he is finishing at the very minimum poorly. And he places him where in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 11, as one of those who by faith has conquered kingdoms, achieved justice and obtained promises, one of those people that the text says are people of whom this world is not worthy. That's God's judgment of wandering Gideon. The God who though the wandering that we see here in Israel is a wandering that is played out generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. The God who never once goes back on his promise to one day send one, a man born of a woman who would be unstained by human sin and who would crush the serpent's head and who would bring to this world not an imperfect peace like Gideon, but a perfect peace. A savior who would be fully God and fully man, whose heart would never wander, but instead would fulfill for his people the one thing they require, who would save them not just in part, but in whole. The God that we see in Jesus. Because what do we have in Jesus? We don't find one like Gideon whose heart is at odd with God's own. Instead, we find one who has the very same heart because he's God too. And the heart they have, it is but one. We have one whose heart is revealed in this, where Gideon came and demanded to be served. Jesus, he didn't come to be served, did he? He came to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have a king who doesn't assert himself on the throne, but one who has it bestowed on him by God himself, one who doesn't thresh us for our sins, but instead is threshed in our place for our sins. We have one who, as Isaiah 9 says, brings a greater freedom than Gideon ever did. Because he doesn't just break the yoke of Midian. He breaks every yoke of oppression and every chain of sin. And he destroys even that most evil of things, death. One that to know him is to encounter something, as Paul says in Philippians 3, is of such surpassing worth that he makes even our greatest successes look like dung. We have hearts that are prone to wander. 
But God, he has given us a remedy. It is that we would look, we would look to the one who while our hearts are wondering, his never, ever pass. And here is the hope of the gospel that we have in this king who is the same yesterday and today and forever. It is that one day, as his people, when we are standing before the throne of grace, it is going to be in a heaven that is full of Gideons and Luthers and Robert Robinsons and even Caleb Clicks. Because his mercy, it is greater than our sin. And his grace is stronger than our rebellion. And his faithfulness is better still than our unfaithfulness. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But Jesus, his heart hasn't wandered. And he has set it on you. Gracious Father, would you meet with us now as your people? Lord, would you take those idols, those things that we have run to, Lord, that have pulled us from faithfulness to you, and Lord, would you shatter them? Would you give us eyes to see them and hearts, Lord, that are so overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus that even the best of things in this world have become repugnant to us? Would you claim us for yourself? Pour your grace out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.